And they said to Jesus, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. These words from the Gospel of St. Mark in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What are we to make of Jesus' disciples? These ambitious, driven, sometimes thick-headed, often faithless, but nevertheless sympathetic characters who never seem to have the right answers and always seem to ask the wrong questions. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What are we to make of this request? Is what James and John ask of Jesus utterly insane, unbelievably presumptuous? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Or is it somehow brilliantly daring, its audacity grounded in a profound knowledge of the goodness and generosity of God? After all, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Our reading from St. Mark's Gospel this morning drops us into a scene of great tension and intrigue within the small community of Jesus' closest followers. James and John, the beloved sons of Zebedee, dear friends of Jesus, think they have an opening. They see Jesus, perhaps alone, and approach him with a request. Grant us to sit, they say, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Quite the ask. But there is some sense to this request. This scene, in fact, follows just a little bit after the account of Christ's transfiguration on the mount, when Peter and James and John beheld Christ's glory. They got a taste of their master, their Messiah's glory revealed in splendor and exaltation, and now they want more. And why should they not be seated beside him in his exalted glory as he is enthroned in his kingdom? After all, Jesus chose them, James and John, along with Peter, to be the ones with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Presumably this meant something, right? These three, these favorites, So shouldn't they have a privileged place when Christ's kingdom comes in its fullness? Our our impulse, I think, is to read James and John's request as prideful and arrogant, but basically still good-intentioned. They have their eyes on heaven, we think. They want to rule with Christ in glory, be seated at his right and left hand in his heavenly kingdom, Sure, maybe first and second chair is a bit much, but shouldn't we desire still to share in Christ's glory, to rule with him in his peaceable kingdom? And yet, I think this is to misunderstand what James and John are actually asking here. It it misses the horizon of their vision. Because after all, James and John, like Peter and the other disciples, still have not really figured out what Jesus' mission is. They keep misunderstanding, not hearing, making missteps, putting words in Jesus' mouth. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus says, and that is exactly right. They don't know what it could mean to be seated with Christ 
in his kingdom because they neither understand the nature of that kingdom nor the form of Christ's rule nor the means of establishing it, at least not clearly. And we take it for granted, and especially when we hear this beautiful reading from Isaiah, the description of the suffering servant of the Lord who saves God's people by his self-offering and anguish and affliction and suffering, when we hear that read alongside our gospel story, we think it's obvious and clear that the passion is the way the kingdom will come for Jesus to be enthroned and to reign. But this is exactly what the disciples cannot understand. Now, maybe it's that they just don't want to, refusing to acknowledge the pain of Christ's soon-coming passion. He's telling them about it. But more likely, it's that their messianic vision has not still been corrected, not been calibrated by Jesus' teaching of what the Son of Man must do. He's saying it, but they're not hearing it. The Son of Man, he says, will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And these words of Jesus come, by the way, in the verse immediately prior to our reading from St. Uh, Mark's Gospel this morning. But Jesus' predictions of suffering in Mark's gospel, repeatedly fall on deaf ears. They cannot penetrate the imaginations of disciples whose visions of redemption and restoration and messianic victory have already been formed and crystallized by projections of what they think God's power must be like. The kingdom Jesus speaks of, they still think he's talking about liberating Jerusalem from the Romans. The authority he speaks of, they still think he's talking about ruling from a throne in that city. The salvation he proclaims, they just think it's finally that this Messiah, unlike the previous dozen or so failed ones, is actually going to free Judea and return Israel to her former glory. So when James and John request seats in Jesus' kingdom, they actually have a particular place in mind, David's royal throne, reestablished in Jerusalem with Jesus reigning over a reconstituted and renewed Israel. James and John have their eyes not on heaven, but on Jerusalem. And they're maneuvering for high-ranking positions in the coming administration. As one writer puts it, there is no recognition here of what will happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. It's what he keeps trying to tell them about. Rather, they're plotting to be in powerful positions when Jesus makes things happen for them in Jerusalem. I want to pause here a moment because I'm worried that you might be falling into a temptation that I myself often give into. And that's to think that these bumbling, ignorant, self-regarding disciples are not us. And that is a profound mistake. Because the reality is this, for most of us, just like for them, the most determinative logic governing our lives is self-interested ambition. 
The only thing distinguishing the disciples from us is that their ambitions are actually probably a bit more noble than ours. I mean, they want to rule with Christ in a messianic kingdom on the earth. They at least want to be with Jesus. Whereas for most of us, our desperate pursuits of recognition, of status, of pleasure, of wealth, of personal achievement could be perfectly fulfilled in a universe where God didn't even exist. So James and John's bold request, they're plotting and scheming for a future of success and power and status, should press us to consider this. What is the object of our ambition? Because we cannot deny that we have it. I mean, if there's one thing that we industrious, hard-working, Protestant work ethic American Christians are marked by, it's the belief that God wants us to succeed. And that success is in some way indicative of our virtue, our diligence, our dedication, maybe even our faithfulness. And so out of fear that failure will reveal to others and even ourselves some kind of personal or moral or spiritual poverty, we desperately and endlessly hustle and grind, toil and climb professional and social and cultural ladders, chasing visions of success and fulfillment at nearly all costs. We, like James and John, are people of ambition. Why does Jesus put up with this, with James and John, with us? I mean, one would think that this blinding self-absorption and lust for power and success are deserving simply of being left behind. But look what Jesus does here. Look how he responds to James and John's delusions and so also ours. He has compassion on their ignorance. You do not know what you're asking for, truly. And he patiently asks them a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? These are familiar Jewish images. The empty cup, a repeated symbol in the Old Testament prophets of suffering that must be endured. Baptism, a ritual of submission to God and God's purposes. So this is what Jesus offers James and John, suffering. If what you desire, he's saying, is to participate in my glory, this is what it means. Now James and John, full of confidence, perhaps still not really understanding what's happening, respond, we are able. And indeed, eventually, they will be granted a share in Christ's suffering and death, taking up their own crosses in martyrdom. But Jesus is not done. He goes on to teach them to again form the disciples' imaginations and understanding of who he is and what it means to follow him. To rule with me, he says, is to serve. To exercise authority is to become a slave. To be a king to give up your life in death. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. 
What's remarkable about this scene, I think, is the extent to which Jesus is attentive to the character and desires and hopes and aspirations of his disciples. Because he receives this impetuous and shameless request from James and John, but instead of castigating their selfishness, he probes their souls. I cannot and will not grant you what you think you desire and need, he says, but I can reform and refine your desires so that they are true and good, so that you end up sitting next to the right throne, my throne. He looks through James and John's foolish request and sees the source of their desires. And what he finds there at the root is the same thing in us. It's this, the vice of ambition. I wonder if you think about your ambition as a vice. My guess is probably not. Because we speak about ambition becoming a vice, usually using the language in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And I think our sense is this, that the problem is not ambition, it's selfishness. The two can be separated, we think, and we can have good ambition, godly grind, holy hustle. We can aspire to greatness and, of course, be recognized for it and receive the proper rewards and uh, uh, money for our hard work and zeal, as long as we don't let it get to our heads too much. But our self-interest and our success, we tell ourselves, it can be a way of serving God, of, of helping others, and so on and so forth. Now, I think we should be very suspicious about our attempts to justify our ambition. We take it for granted that success and our striving for it is inherently good, that honor and recognition are worthy goods, that the good life is fundamentally about winning. But is any of that true? One of the great things about reading old books is the way they challenge us by rejecting and questioning some of the most basic and unquestioned presuppositions and prejudices that we have. Like maybe you might be surprised when you open up the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae to find Thomas explaining why ambition, ambitio, is itself a sin and a vice, plain and simple. It's kind of shocking, actually. But I think Thomas sees something important here about the teaching of Jesus and the life of discipleship. Because what he discerns is that the pattern and logic of the life of Christ is directly opposed to ambition. Because it begins in humility and culminates in complete self-sacrifice and death and then continues eternally in perpetual self-giving and love. For Jesus, success looks like this. Giving up the privileges of divinity, taking on the flesh of a poor and marginal Palestinian man, suffering and dying in abject misery, and rising and ascending to a life of continual pouring out and self-offering of his own body and blood, life 
and grace to unworthy and faithless sinners. Now that is not success, but it is love. And the reason ambition is so destructive, St. Thomas tells us, is because ultimately it is a sin against love. It's contrary to charity, as he puts it. He points to St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, charity is not ambitious, seeketh not her own. Ambition is a vice that sets us against the love of God. Because ambition is about winning. And the love of God, revealed in the life of Jesus and the witness of his saints, is about losing. Losing everything in order to find everything in God and God's love. Now look, ambition is, for many of us, for me, a habit and desire so ingrained in our thinking, so dominant in our imaginations, so pervasive in our lives and our sense of self and meaning that it's difficult, near impossible, to imagine living a life freed from it. But there is actually a cure. There is a remedy for the vice of ambition. It's love. It's charity. Because just as ambition is contrary to charity, so is charity a con- is in contradiction to ambition. True love, the love of God, roots out and dissolves ambition, points our desires to God and God alone. And lucky for us, it's exactly this love, the self-sacrificing, self-giving, rash, and unheeding charity that Christ continually offers us, gives to us, even this morning. He offers us, in fact, the same thing that he offered James and John at the height of their ambitious scheming. The cup that he drinks and the baptism with which he is baptized. He offers us a participation in his love. Dipping our fingers in the waters of baptism and renewing our union in his death putting the cup to our lips, eating and drinking his crucified body and blood. He pours out his life for us in suffering love that we might be healed of ambition and joined to him in eternal blessedness and happiness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.